So go ahead, if you would, and turn with me to Colossians chapter 4 this morning. We're going to be looking at 2 to 18 this morning. In these final words, I think it's very interesting that we see the heart of the Apostle Paul, a personal pastoral heart being exposed here in this really intimate chapter of this book. As we look at this in just a moment, you're going to see that Paul begins in in verse 2 by asking for the church to pray for him, which is really interesting. He's been giving them all these instructions and coming down as a leader and an apostle and and telling them what they need to be doing and how they need to be doing it. And now he's saying, but but I need you, too, to pray for me. And he's saying, pray for me, and in particular, pray that I'll be a better witness for Christ. Isn't that amazing? The very, very man who's writing this letter is saying, I, I need prayer so that I'll be a faithful witness for Christ. That's Paul's desire for himself, and I believe that's God's desire for all those who labor together in the body of Christ. In verses 2 to 6, we see, I think, that God wants us to be devoted to this. We need to be devoted to prayer. We need to be devoted to service. And we need to be devoted to evangelism. Look at the text there with me in verse 2. Paul writes this and says, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. He's saying, be, be devoted to this. Be devoted to this kind of prayer. Careful prayer and thanksgiving. Praising God for what He's doing in your body, in this church. Then he goes on to say, in verses 3 and 4, that we need to be devoted to service. He says, at the same time that you're praying, right? Pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. He's saying, you be steadfast in your prayer life, in thanksgiving, carefully giving thanks to God, being watchful in it, but at the same time, be, be devoted to serving others like me in my ministry by praying for me that God would open up doors so that I could share the truth with others. He goes on in verse 5 and 6. I think he shows that we need to be devoted to not just prayer and service, but to actively being evangelistic. He says, now, after you've prayed for yourselves and prayed for me to go out, he says in verse 5, walk in wisdom Yourselves is what he's talking about. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious. Season with salt so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. What he's doing is saying, look, we're we're working together in the kingdom. I need you, you need me, and we need to be doing this together. We need to pray for one another. We need to serve one another. We need to evangelize together. This is God's purpose for the church. But we're to do this as a body, as believers, gathered together to magnify Christ locally and globally. His final words, I think, in this chapter are filled with with pathos, with passion. They're filled with instruction, filled with edification for each believer who reads this chapter. Not just the church at Colossae, but for us today. Colossians 4 ends with personal and purposeful encouragement because God wants the saints to know how important their ministry is to the Colossians. 
And he wants us to study this so that we will know how important our ministry is to those who are here in our body and in our community. In verses 7 to 18, the Apostle Paul addresses eight important individuals. Eight important individuals who helped him serve Christ and the church. When you read this passage, this chapter, it's like opening up eight living letters, eight mini biographies, if you will, eight biographies that tell us how important every individual in the church is to the ministry that God has placed them in. If you'll notice something as you read through this list, you'll probably only recognize a couple of guys' names. Most of the saints listed here are unsung heroes of the faith. But yet, Paul is saying they're essential to his work, to Christ's work. And what I want you to understand this morning is you are also just as essential to this work and Christ's work here in Ada. You're all living letters. Living letters that reveal Christ's love to our community, to our church family. And I want you to understand this morning that every individual in our church is important in this work. So today, I'm going to give you your outline. If you didn't pick one up, I'll give you one you can write down. Today in Colossians 4, 7 to 18, I want to remind you that, number one, your faithful dedication is important. I want to remind you, number two, that your tender affection is needed. I want to remind you that, number three, your sympathetic association is desired. And I want to remind you that, number four, your restored devotion is useful. And I want to remind you that, number five, your supportive consolation is encouraging. And number six, that your active intercession is comforting. And number seven, that your sacrificial attention is edifying. And I also want to remind you that possible misperception in the church is terrifying. We'll see these flesh themselves out as we go through the text this morning. But just know that I'm, I'm delivering this to you as Paul was delivering this to the Colossians as a point of encouragement and a point of equipping. I want you to understand that each one of us in the body function in such a way that we, we feed and nourish others around us. You have a spiritual gift. Every believer has a spiritual gift, but it's intended for the good of others in the body of Christ. And sometimes the, the gifts are manifest in a, in a public way, the preaching, uh, the teaching gifts, uh, you know, certain things you can see. But many times and most times your gifts are behind the scenes and it's seen through your dedication, your affection, your association, your devotion, your consolation, your intercession and your attention those gifts are seen through those active things that you're doing in the body of Christ. And I want you to be reminded of that and that each one of you hold a very special place in my heart and in the work that we're doing here in this church. Let's begin by looking at Colossians 4, 7 to 8 this morning. Here Paul reveals the importance of Tychicus's faithful dedication. His faithful dedication. In verse 7, Paul writes... Tychicus will tell you about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I've sent him to you for this very purpose that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your 
hearts. You know, oftentimes we read things like this and we're like, that was nice, Paul, and we move on. But this is, this is, this is phenomenal. First of all, he's mentioning this man in this letter. My name's not written in the Bible anywhere, okay? Yours isn't either. But this man, he made it in the book because he was a faithful servant of Christ. And I believe that you are in God's book if you're a faithful servant of Christ as well. Your faithful dedication makes a difference. Tychicus was a faithful letter bearer. He was the man who carried this letter to the Colossians from Paul. He was a faithful letter bearer. And he shows us that the greatest ability that any of us have is availability. Because he was there and he was willing to serve Jesus, he became the letter bearer and took this letter to the Colossians, which equipped them and protected them and guided them. He was faithful to be there. He was faithful to do what Paul asked him to do. He was a faithful messenger. He was available. And that's where faithfulness begins. It begins with availability. You have to be here to be counted faithful. You have to be a part of what's going on to be used for the glory of God. In Colossians 4, 7, he he calls Tychicus a faithful brother and fellow servant of Christ. The word servant there is deacon. He's called a a deacon. He was probably the Apostle Paul's personal assistant. That's probably how he functioned. He carried his books. He he went with them where he needed to go. He he picked up and, and moved things for Paul so that Paul could have a place to preach. He was just the guy who was always there, available for Paul. And when there was a need to send this letter to the Colossians, he was there and said, I'm willing, brother, send me. And that needs to be all of our hearts. When we see a need rise up in the church... Brother, send me. God, send me. Let me do it. Let me be a part of it. In verse 8, we learn that, that Paul had basically sent him to Colossae in Paul's stead, in Paul's place. But he sent him there in particular because he was a faithful encourager. He knew that he could rely on Tychicus. He knew if he sent him, he would go, he would be there, and he would deliver the message to the Colossians, and that would encourage their faith. We can see how faithful and encouraging Tychicus was if we look back in Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians 6, 21. He's mentioned there. Paul's relying on him in this passage. You can see this in 6:21. So that you also may know how, how I am and what I am doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you, For this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. He wasn't just a dry letter bearer. He came with joy. He came in the stead of Paul delivering this message with joy and anticipation to know that God is working through him. He's going to minister to these people at Ephesus, at Colossae, through his faithfulness. And that encourages the saints. And Paul, Paul could rely on that man to do this. We need men and women that we can rely on in the body of Christ to encourage others, to go to the body, to meet the needs that are arising in the church family. And just ask yourself as you read this, as you think about this one almost insignificant man, Tychicus, ask yourself, is, is this your testimony Is this your testimony when you're called on to serve our church family? 
Are you a faithfully dedicated servant of Christ? The church needs that. We need available servants who will labor behind the scenes to encourage others. And what I find interesting about Tychicus, you know, Paul calls him an encourager. But we don't see anything that really identifies Tychicus as a charismatic personality or super spiritually gifted speaker. He's just simply available. He's faithful. And that is what God is magnifying in his life and using to bring Christ praise at Colossae. Faithfulness is essential to the edification of a local church. So as we think about Tychicus, let me ask you another question. As, as Paul calls him a faithful brother and fellow servant of Christ, a faithfully dedicated man, what do you think Paul would call you this morning? What do you think Paul would call you if he was laboring with us here at Sovereign Grace? What would identify you in the body of Christ here? What would be your testimony? Now just think about that. Meditate on that this morning. And if you see something lacking in your testimony, call upon God. He is full of grace and mercy and able to equip you for this ministry. He wants you to be a part of his ministry. He brought you here for that purpose. Now go back to Colossians 4.9. In 4.9, we see the second point. Paul re- reveals the importance of another man named Onesimus. He reveals the importance of Onesimus's tender affection. His tender affection. Look what it says. And with Tychicus, with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. He's a member of that church. They will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Now, if you know anything about Onesimus, you know he shows up in another book in the Bible called Philemon. Onesimus was a reconciled sinner. And I think he reminds us that we should, we should seek to receive others in the body of Christ who have fallen tenderly. We need to receive the fallen with tender affection. Because the Apostle Paul is receiving Onesimus, and Onesimus was a mess. He started off as a runaway slave. And God drove him right into the Apostle Paul in prison and strapped him to a gospel preacher where Onesimus came to know Christ and was changed and sent back to his church, sent back to his family. And now he's saying, look, this man, this man needs to be received with tender affection. He needs to be acknowledged for what he is. He's a faithful and beloved brother, no longer just a sinner He's a reconciled man. He was a runaway slave who ran into God's loving hand of providence in jail, according to Philemon 1, 10 to 16. Verse 10, I appeal to you for my child. Notice how Paul speaks of Onesimus. It's very intimate. This is personal encouragement here. I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly, he was what? He was useless. Actually, that's what his name meant. They called him useless. He was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I'm sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. 
But I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Those are some touching and stinging words from the Apostle Paul to a church, a man in particular in a church, who didn't want to receive Onesimus back because he had betrayed him, because he had ran away from him. But now, by God's grace, this runaway sinner had now been reconciled to God. He is a reconciled saint. And now he was important to the Apostle Paul's work and to the work there with this church. And that just reminds us of something. We're all reconciled sinners. We're all runaway slaves of sin. have been brought back to God by His grace. And now we're all called into His service. And we need to remember that when we receive others who may have appeared to have fallen short of our own standards. We need to receive them with tender affection, knowing that God forgives sinners and sanctifies them and makes them useful again. There in Colossians 4.9 you know, he's, Paul's emphasizing the same thing he did there in Philemon, that this man is more than a brother. He calls him a faithful and beloved brother. And that's the power of Christ's forgiveness and grace on display in Onesimus. When a person comes to faith in Christ, their past no longer defines their life. In verse 9, Paul says that he should be received with love as a forgiven brother in Christ. This is how we are to receive one another. As I said, we're all runaway slaves of sin. And the way we receive one another should testify to our joy over God's forgiveness towards sinners. We shouldn't hold their sins of the past against them if they are seeking to serve Christ now due to his forgiveness and they're living in active repentance. And I pray that we will do what the Apostle Paul is really calling for the church at Colossae to receive him as a faithful, beloved brother. They will receive repentant brothers and sisters with tender affection, not with distance and suspicion. I want you to, to pray this with me. Pray, pray that we receive one another the way Jesus received the woman in Luke 7. Look with me at Luke 7, 41. I'm just, I'm just thinking here. Um, as we think about this, as we consider our debt to God before we were saved and how he has received us, I can't imagine us not wanting to receive others who have been forgiven by God's grace through Christ's sacrifice. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both, not which... No, now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you've judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she, she has wet, wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. But from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. 
Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who are at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Because her sins were forgiven, she loved much, and she should be received with tender affection, the way she was receiving Christ when he came into the house. And I pray that we think about that when people come into the church who have been reconciled to God yet had a spotted past like mine. I pray that we receive them as if they are Christ's because they are. They belong to him. You belong to him. We should treat one another as those who belong to Christ, as reconciled sinners. Now look with me back in Colossians 4. 10a, the first half of verse 10. Here in this is my third point. Paul, Paul reveals the importance of another man named Aristarchus. He reveals the importance of Aristarchus' sympathetic association. He says, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. Now, Aristarchus, not not much is mentioned here other than the fact that he is a fellow prisoner of the Apostle Paul, but we know more about him in the rest of Scripture. But what we see is, according to Paul, he was was a faithful brother. He's a fellow prisoner. And the reason I think I call him a faithful brother is what you'll see later is that he was a fellow prisoner by choice, not by breaking the law. This man reminds us of how brotherly love serves the weary and the hurting saints willfully. There in verse 10a, Paul is basically saying he's refreshed by this man's relentless love. This man was a Jewish brother. Aristarchus is referred to as a fellow prisoner here. And this ministry of of service began a long time before this in the book of Acts. Go with me there to Acts 19. Aristarchus' ministry began alongside Paul at Ephesus in Acts 19, verse 23. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see, see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, who were Paul's companions in travel. Now you would think at this moment that Aristarchus would take a step back and evaluate his relationship with the Apostle Paul. If you hang around this man, you're going to get hurt. You're going to get ran out of town on a rail. You're going to be 
possibly persecuted to death. But that didn't stop Aristarchus. He was a sympathetic associate. He sympathized with Paul. He knew what Paul was going through because he was willing to go through it with him to serve him. We see that further in Acts 20, verse 1. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. There he spent three months, and when a a plot was made against him by the Jews, as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. Sopater, the Berean son of Phyrus, accompanied him, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Sidonius, and Gaius of Derby, and Timothy of the Asians, Tychicus, and Trophimus. They went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. They went on ahead. They went on counting the cost of what it meant to follow Christ and serve this apostle. They went on forsaking their own life, forsaking their own comfort to be there to comfort the apostle Paul. That's sympathetic association, and we need that in the church. That kind of heart. We, we see, as you look at Acts 27, go, go there quickly with me. Acts 27, verse 1. We see that Aristarchus's relentless love for Paul and for the labor that Paul was involved in led him into this imprisonment that Paul is writing about there in Colossians. In Acts 27, 1, it says, And when it was decided that we, a circle the word we, when we, should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. We would include Aristarchus. He, he willfully joined Paul in this imprisonment. He had broke no laws. Paul was the one being arrested, yet he willfully traveled as a prisoner. You couldn't just, this wasn't a cruise ship. This was a prison ship. This was a ship full of inmates. You didn't get on there with a ticket. You got on there with chains. He was a willful prisoner. He went on there to serve sympathetically the Apostle Paul and associate with him through persecution. He went on this voyage to serve Jesus by serving Paul. That's sympathetic association. That's devotion. He was a prisoner of choice. He chose this life so that he could magnify Christ because Christ was the sympathetic one who came and took our place and showed us what love looks like in person. And Aristarchus wants to magnify Jesus by serving Paul. I think that that's the case because I think that Aristarchus wasn't a prisoner of Rome. He was a prisoner of Christ. He was captive by Jesus and his love. He was captivated by that love. He was a sympathetic associate with Paul. And I think that it it revealed that he was this relentless minister of brotherly love. And we need that in the church. We need relentless brotherly love in the body of Christ. Because the body of Christ isn't always lovely. And we need love to cover a multitude of sins. We need loving brothers and sisters who will sacrifice many things to serve us, to help us, to rebuke us, to comfort us. And maybe even possibly go with us through persecution. So ask yourself this this morning. Do you take your ministry of brotherly love as seriously as Aristarchus? Do you take your ministry of brotherly love this serious? Are we this committed to Christ 
and one another here at our church. Maybe we're not, but that's something God can resolve. We can be this devoted by God's grace, according to Philippians 2. Philippians 2, verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to your own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. You can do this. The implication in verse 1 of that passage is, since you do have love, since you do have participation in the Spirit, since you do have affection, since you do have sympathy, because you belong to Christ, then you can do this. You have the mind of Christ. You can love like Aristarchus, because Aristarchus loved like Jesus. Now go back with me to Colossians 4.10b. In this part, second half of that verse, we see the fourth point. Paul reveals the importance of Mark's restored devotion. He just mentions, mentions Mark almost in passing. After Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner greets you, he says, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. But then he says this, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he, if he shows up, here's what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to welcome him. Mark was a welcomed brother by the Apostle Paul. And Mark reminds us that God restores broken fellowship, broken relationships in the body of Christ. Paul refers to Mark as one who should be Welcomed, or the, the, the Greek rendering is simply this, received, received, embraced. But we know historically that he wasn't welcomed by Paul one time because Mark had broken a commitment to follow through and become a disciple of Paul and go with him into the ministry in Acts 15. Look with me there, Acts 15, verse 36. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now, Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement. That was a fight, folks, between Barnabas and Paul over Mark's lack of commitment. And here's how serious the fight was. It was so sharp a disagreement that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. Barnabas means son of encouragement. It's a good thing Mark went with him. I don't know that that gift was active at the moment in Paul's life. Okay. Paul was looking at the duty of ministry. And Paul said, no, you're not, if you're not committed, if you're not going to follow through with your commitment, you're not going. But God worked providentially here. And he paired them off in two different directions. The work doubled as a result. And Mark was encouraged by Barnabas' ministry to him personally. That failure, it seems, in that relationship proved to be good and necessary for both Mark and for Paul and for the gospel to spread around the world. 
right? The young man who had not been welcomed by Paul because he had failed in his commitment, because he did not follow through to what he promised to do, and he was severed from him for a time, that man was received by God and received by God's grace and was, was encouraged by Barnabas's ministry and became once again useful to others in the future through this discipline, through this time of, of difficulty. And here in 2 Timothy 4, 11, we learn that Mark became so useful that the Apostle Paul said, I need him now. Now, the context of 2 Timothy is this. Paul is about to die, and he knows it. It's the last letter of the Apostle Paul ever penned. He knows he is about to leave this earth. And he says, there's a few things that I need while I'm still here, and Mark is one of them. So Mark was reconciled. Mark was restored, and he was received back to Paul here. Look what it says in 4.11. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Now, I think there are multiple things going on in that statement. And I think he's the one guy, after they reconciled, they got everything right, that he, he held him dear to his heart. And he wanted to see him before he passed away and left this earth. He wanted Mark to know down deep that he had been received back, that he had been welcomed back into the ministry. He wanted him there with him. So he was begging for him to get Mark and bring him, bring him back. By God's grace, church, Mark became useful to Paul for personal ministry. And not only that, he became so useful so restored that he wasn't just useful for the Apostle Paul. He was useful for all of us. He's the guy who wrote the Gospel of Mark. That's how God's restoring power works. It doesn't just put us back to neutral. It brings us back into usefulness so that not only are we received by the church, we're received by God himself and then able to be used to do glorious things for the name of God. I think it's an example Mark is an example of the power of God's grace to restore sinners in the body of Christ, not unrepentant sinners, but sinners in the body of Christ who are broken, who know they need God's forgiveness and grace, yet they need to be brought back in and welcomed when that's been taking place in their hearts. So just remember this, church. Don't, don't, don't let your past failures define God's future purposes for your life. Let the failures of your past point you back to the cross where we find forgiveness, full forgiveness, and full restoration to usefulness again. That's what happened with Mark. Church, if you've been reconciled to God, you've been restored after a failure, just know this. There are many opportunities ahead of you by God's grace for you to be able to serve him and the church. Trust in that. Rejoice in that. Aren't you glad that he restores our brokenness? He makes us useful again. And then, then he graces us with these abilities to do things we couldn't do before so that he's praised and we're benefited and the church is edified. Isn't it it's just amazing how God works? These chapters like chapter 4 of Colossians reminds me of that. These are a bunch of sinners saved by grace, restored back into God's economy and God's purposes, sent out to make much of Jesus through their simple faith and trust and desire to magnify Christ through their service. In Colossians 4.11, we see the fifth 
thing that I want to point out here. We see that Paul reveals the importance of another man. His name is Justice. Paul reveals the importance of Justice's supportive consolation. Those are kind of big words, but it fit with the outline, okay? So that's why it's there. Justice's supportive consolation. What I mean by that is he was simply the guy who was there to support Paul. That's really all that we know about him. That's, that's all that we need to know. He's this little-known supporter, but, but he shows us the importance of comforters in the church, doesn't he? Again, Paul mentions him by name in a letter inspired by God. That's how important this man was to him. He's only mentioned here in the Bible. This is the only place you'll find justice mentioned in the Bible at all. He says in verse 11, And Jesus, who is called justice, he also, when he comes, he says, These are the only men of the circumcision among whom are among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. He was a fellow Jew. We know that about him. He was a comforter to Paul. That's, that is, that's phenomenal in and of itself. He was a Jewish supporter, okay? In that sense, he was a supporter of Paul as a Jewish Christian. He wasn't one of the Jews who came after Paul all the time trying to hurt him. He was a Jewish comforter, a Jewish consoler. Again, little is known about him, except that he comforted Paul. Listen, I would love for this to be my testimony. All that people know about me is that, that I am a comforter to the weary. All that people know about me is that Christ is comforting people through me. That's, that's all that I care about. And what a great testimony this is. Are you a comforter this morning? Are you willing to be a supportive consoler this morning? Are you willing to look at your brothers and sisters and just say, I'm here for you. I'm here. Prayer, needs, phone calls, accountability, whatever it is, just call me. I'll be here. You may feel like you have no gifts, no abilities, no, nothing, nothing to contribute to the body, but just say, I'm here, and that's a comfort for us. We need you. Just because little is said about justice doesn't mean there's little going on in his life. His presence was a comfort to Paul. And remember that. Even if you don't feel important to others in our church. Just know that we are edified by your presence and your support. Your presence testifies to your love for Jesus. That's comforting to us. You being here week in and week out, willing to serve, willing to listen, willing to grow together, that's comforting to the church. It's a testimony to your love for Christ. Now, sixthly, let's look at Colossians 4, 12 to 13. Here, Paul reveals the importance of Epaphras's active intercession, his active intercession in verses 12 and 13. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Heropolis. Verse 13, he says, I bear him witness. What he's saying is, what I just said about him praying... I've seen him doing it. I've watched him sweat through this. I've heard his agony in his prayers on your behalf. I bear him witness. He has worked hard for you, for those who are in Laodicea and Hierapolis. This man was prayerfully devoted. And he, he shows us how necessary prayer is in the body of Christ. Epaphras 
was not just a prayer warrior. He was their pastor. He was the founding pastor of this church. He was the man who was there at Colossae from the beginning. So his heart is attached to these people. And he is expressing that through his active intercession. And Paul describes him as such a man as one who is a restless servant of Christ. Fully devoted to Christ's glory and the ministry of the church. And he's so devoted that Paul says he's always, notice that word in verse uh, 12, he's always struggling on your behalf in prayers. The word struggling is agonizomai. It means to agonize. He says he's always agonizing in prayer. And the word agonizing means working to the point of exhaustion. What's he working to the point of exhaustion for? Well, that's what he says. So that you may stand mature and fully assured of God's will. Church, let this be an encouragement to us this morning. We need to have a prayerful heart like this man, Epaphras. We need this, church, because Epaphras knew something that most of us know. I think most of us are going to be more aware of as we grow older. That life as a Christian is hard. Living in a fallen world is hard. Standing against false teaching is hard. He was a pastor. He knew that those people were being afflicted by false teachers. He's interceding for them with passion. Because he knows being a Christian can be overwhelming at times. You're fighting against the flow of Satan, sin, and the flesh. We need this. We need this kind of prayerful heart in us because as, as Christians, as Christian parents, as, as Christian employees and employers, we, we are standing against the flow of this world with our hands held up going, God, we need your strength. I can't stop all this, but it's, it's, it's coming so fast. I need your protection in it. Lest I be discouraged by it. Lest the flesh and the enemy rises up and tempts me to walk in it. We need to be standing and and praying and begging God and, and calling on the Lord to, to stand in, the, in a way that, that, that would be between us and the world and help us to mature and be fully assured that He is in charge of our lives. And we can trust in His will and His ways. But this testimony of Epaphras tells us we need active intercessors to do that. We need active intercessors praying that we will all be prepared for the ministry that God's placed us in in our life. Whether we're a mom, a dad, a school teacher, a child, we need people praying that God would prepare us to stand up and be mature Christians and walk in His ways. We need active intercessors like Epaphras. Now, in Colossians 4 14, Paul reveals the importance of Luke's sacrificial attention. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you. It doesn't say a lot about Luke, but we know a lot about Luke from Scripture. Luke was a sacrificial servant. This man could have had a thriving practice outside of the Apostle Paul's life as a physician. But instead, Luke illustrates the importance of personal care for those who are in the body of Christ. Again, Luke was a physician by trade. He was also a Gentile believer who chose to travel with Paul as his personal caregiver. He ministered to Paul's physical needs while he was a prisoner, oftentimes. 
And he also ministered to Paul's spiritual needs as a faithful friend. And what I want you to remember about Luke is his sacrificial attention. Luke used his education and his friendship to further the gospel. And so can you. I want you to see that this morning. God, God has called you and I to use our skills outside of the church and in the church in such a way that it would be the hands and feet of Christ that's going forth through our activities. Whether we're a doctor or a machinist or a farmer or a homemaker, whatever it be, let, let our hands and feet be magnifying Christ as we offer them up in service to Jesus as we care for one another sacrificially giving your lives attentively to care for one another personally. That's what Luke is doing. You ever think about Luke like that? I mean, this would be the equivalent of some, some doctor that you know personally saying, I'm going to shut my practice down and follow this pastor around as he goes on missionary journeys throughout the world so that I could care for him and use my abilities to glorify Jesus. I'm not a pastor. I'm not a teacher. I'm a nobody, but I'm a physician, so I'm going to use my skills just so I can care for him so that he can proclaim the gospel. We need to think about our skills in that way. How can we use our skills, our abilities, to serve others in the body so that they can go do the things we can't do? How can we offer up our services willfully to help others go do their ministry? Just think about maybe ways you can do that this week. Now, I want to get to the last point here on my outline and mention the last point, sadly. Um, in Colossians 4, 14b, Paul reveals the importance of possible misperception. He says, you know, basically receive Luke, the beloved physician. He's, he's greeting you, as does Demas. He just throws Demas in at the end there. We don't know a lot about him from this, but we know a lot about him from the rest of Scripture. Demas, the history of Demas, reminds us that it is possible to serve alongside those in the church who really love the world. In 14b, we see that Paul trusted all those who professed faith in Christ. He, he trusted their profession. He, he leaned upon them willfully. I think he learned that from, from Mark. Mark had fallen short, yet he was reconciled. So, so Paul is trusting anyone who professes faith in Christ, and he's trusting that Demas is in that camp. But unlike Mark, something was missing. Something was missing. What Mark had was the forgiving grace of God that changed his heart and his life. Demas was without that. He was not reconciled to God. And so in time and under persecution, instead of being refined and sanctified like Mark, Demas retreated and deserted like Judas. He deserted Christ. He deserted Paul. He did so for the love of the world, according to 2 Timothy 4, 2 Timothy 4, 9 and 10. Again, he's writing to Timothy here and says, do your best to come to me soon. Again, Paul's dying. He's in this Mamertine prison. He is in the dark and the gloom and this, this cold, desperate situation. He says, do your best, Timothy, to come to me soon. Why? I need a Timothy. I need a brother. I need a faithful, beloved servant of Christ because Demas 
in love with this present world has deserted me. He's deserted me. This is heartbreaking, saints. This teaches us that we can have a possible misperception of those who sit in the congregation. Demises are all too common in the ministry. They're common because sometimes the ministry and the church looks like a comforting place. It looks like a good place. It looks like a, a place that does good things in the world so everybody wants to join in. But not everybody is a part of the body of Christ if they're not born again. And in time and under persecution and trials, the tests come that prove whether or not you are a Christian. And those who are not depart. They leave. We see that in Matthew 7. Matthew seven thirteen. These are somber words from the Lord Jesus here. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. That's the road that, that Demas was on, okay? And those who enter by it are many, many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard, it's compact, it's constricted, that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Demas' fruit was desertion, abandonment, rejection. Verse 21 says, not everyone. These are just some of the most chilling words in the Gospels here. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. These men are men who say, don't I get into the kingdom for all the things that I've done? I've got a deliverance ministry. I've got these mighty works that testify to what, what I'm doing in my work. I'm, I'm, I'm faithful. I'm popular. I'm, I'm big. I'm, I'm well known. I'm active. And Jesus says, I never knew you. You're boasting in your works, not in mine. Not everybody who says, Lord, Lord, gets in the kingdom, saints. There's a possible misconception and misperception sometimes in the church that everyone who says that they're a Christian is really in. Many may profess Christ, but when testings come, when trials come, we begin to see what's in their hearts. That's what Mark 4, 16 says. The parable of the seed. These are the ones sown on rocky ground. The ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. These are the people like Demas. It says, and they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. They fall away because they were never born again, saints. They were attracted to the ministry. They were attracted to the promises. They were attracted to the comfort or the community. 
or the social activity of the church, but not to Christ. And so when trials rise up in their lives, when they are being persecuted for the sake of the word and for truth, they desert. They follow Demas. They'd rather do what pleases the world than stand and face the world for Christ's sake. That testifies to whether they're born again or not. Many profess faith in Christ, but the tests in life prove whether or not Christ has saved them. It's possible to have a misperception of people in the church. We need to remember that. Time and testing will tell the truth. How do I know someone's a Christian? I don't know until time and truth is manifest in their life. You can tell me you're a Christian. I'm going to take your word. I'm going to rejoice in that. But time and testing will prove what's in your heart. Do you have a love for Christ? Do you have a love for his word? Do you love his people so much that you can't stand missing this fellowship? Do you love the word so much that you must feed on it every day? Do you love Christ so much that you call upon him constantly? That you lean upon him? That you rejoice over him? That you hate your sin and turn to him constantly? Time and truth will tell. Do you remain true to the word? Do you remain true to God's will? It'll prove whether or not you're truly in the body of Christ. Now go back with me to Colossians 4, 15 to 18. Listen to the final words here in this chapter. Paul writes, Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and to the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, uh, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Paul, Paul wants this church to know that they're supposed to read this entire letter and pass it on. He wants the church to read this letter. And he wants them to learn how important it is as they read this letter he wants them to know how important it is to read the living letters of those who they labor with there in this church. Just like the ones he just listed. He wants them to be able to labor together as one. He wants them to labor together so that they would not be easily divided in truth and in unity. He wants them to labor together so that they would be encouraged and not discouraged in their work as they stand against false teaching and against sin in this world. He wants them to be living letters, and he wants them to read one another's lives and see the work of Christ being manifest in the church. And what I want to remind you of this morning is you are also living letters. And people are reading your lives today. People are reading about the gospel through your daily commitment to Christ. And very, very importantly, according to chapter 3 of Colossians, people are reading you in your daily routines. Listen carefully to this. Your employer reads about your commitment to Jesus through your faithfulness at work or your lack thereof. Your spouse reads about your love for Christ through your patience and your pursuit of holiness. Your kids read about your faithfulness to Christ through your repentance 
when you fail them, when you discourage them, and when you disciple them. Your church family reads about your love for Jesus through your faithful activity in the body of Christ. Church, I understand this, this is an infallible letter. We're not. Right? I understand that. But we have a gracious God who places us in a local church that through our labor together and our love together, we can magnify Jesus and fulfill our ministry together as one body. That's Paul's final word to that interim pastor, Archippus, there in verse 17. He says, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. And that's what I am calling on you to consider this morning. See to it that you fulfill the ministry in this church that you've received from the Lord. Every single one of you has a role to play here. Attendees are not needed. It's important to be here, but it's important to be here connected in the heart to one another. In the bond of peace. Bound together in Christ's love. Willing to serve one another like we saw these saints serving one another in Colossians 4. We're all called to be living letters and reveal God's grace by the way we edify one another. By the way we evangelize the lost. By the way we glorify Christ through our local church. Let's pray that that will be our testimony till Christ comes or till we go home. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for giving us a living letter to read this morning. And we do pray that you would make us living letters that reveal the love of Christ through our labors, through our joys, through our difficulties, we pray that today, as, as we consider our, our role in the local church, we would be reminded that it's by grace that we can do what we're called to do. It's not by our own effort, our own strength, but it's by your, your spirit that works in us. We pray that as we consider that, we would rest in that, that we would find hope in that, that we would not fret, but we would, we would find repentance that turns us back to Christ so that we would rejoice in seeing you work through the body as we are weak, so that you would be made much of through our weakness. We would decrease and Christ would increase through our activities. God, this is, this is your church, and we, we acknowledge that. It's not our church. The church belongs to you, Jesus. But we are privileged to be a part of it. And we want to serve in such a way that when people see our service... They can't help but see Christ. They can't help but magnify your goodness, your forgiveness, your grace that welcomes us, that brings us back as reconciled sinners to the throne of grace where we find mercy in the time of our need. Help us to constantly think about this and fix our minds on your purposes as we seek to fulfill the ministry you have sent us out to accomplish in Jesus' name. I pray.